0: Luke, chapter 4, verses 38 through 44. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, there's more, sorry. And when it was day, he departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to them to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. Good
1: morning, family of God. Let's bow our heads one more time. And just quiet our souls in God's presence as we we get ready to meditate on the scriptures. Where you are, I would just encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you and to those around you in a fresh way today. Then I'm going to say a prayer for us. Our father in heaven, we love you and we thank you that you loved us first and we thank you that you sent Jesus to save us. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We pray right now that you would forgive our sins, that you would cleanse us, that you would heal us and that your spirit would move in a fresh way today. Lord, we praise you that you are a God who speaks. You're a God who has revealed yourself in Christ. And in your holy word, and as we take a few minutes to study the words, would you give me grace to speak everything that you want me to and nothing that you don't? And would you give us all grace to hear with understanding that we would know the truth? The truth would set us free. We believe everything you teach, trust everything you promise, obey everything that you command. And that this gospel of the kingdom would bring deep healing and transformation into our lives. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Now, in this short text of scripture, Luke, the great historian of the early church, has compressed into a small space a lot of activity. These verses give us a snapshot of about a 24 hour period in the life of Jesus in the early days of his public ministry. And Jesus does a lot of stuff in that time period. It was an action packed 24 hours. And if we read it too quickly, it could just kind of feel like Luke saying, and then this happened and then that happened and this happened and then that happened. And we don't see how it all fits together. But I think that Luke wants one particular theme to stand out to us in this text, which kind of gives a focus to all the little stories about Jesus that are in the text. And if you want to see that theme, you can look with me at verse 43. I'm going to read that verse one more time. It says, but Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. We'll come back and chew on this verse a little bit more in a few minutes. But right now, I really just want you to focus on those few words, the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus summarized his ministry as a proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of God. And when we understand the good news of the kingdom of God, that helps us understand what's happening in all the rest of these stories. So everybody say good news. Everybody say the kingdom of God. Now when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about God's rule, God's reign, God's power, His authority over His creation. The Lord God created the heavens and the earth and he rules over the heavens and the earth with love and wisdom, with power and justice and mercy and righteousness. God is king and God has always been king. The Bible says over and over that God has always been king. Let me just give you one example. Psalm 9610, written some thousand years before Jesus walked the earth, says this. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. God is king and God has always been king. Psalm 9610 just said the Lord reigns, present tense. And yet in Psalm 9610, there was some expectation for a greater experience of God's kingdom, of his rule in the future, because it says he will judge the peoples with equity. Now, why is there some greater expectation for a future reality of God's kingdom? The answer becomes clear if we think about our experience. God is good. He's a good king over His creation. And there's a lot of goodness in the world. Do you see a lot of goodness and beauty in the world, church family? But there's also a lot of ugliness. If you've seen some evil and ugliness and chaos in the world this week, say, Lord, help us. There's a lot of evil, there's a lot of chaos. And the the picture in the Bible is actually that God is king over creation, but the world is in a state of civil war. Human beings were created good by God. Angels were created good by God. But the biblical story tells us that some of the angels and all of the human beings rebelled against God. It also tells us God, God made those humans and angels free to trust him or not trust him. And when they rebelled against God, they had been given delegated authority within creation and the rebellion of angels and of human beings brought a curse into the creation such that there's chaos everywhere in the world. Romans 8 tells us the creation itself is groaning for redemption and renewal when God's kingdom comes. So that's why there's these little phrases in the Bible like Ephesians 2 verse 2 that says it describes Satan as the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's civil war. Satan's a rebel power, and the demons are rebel powers, and human beings are rebel powers within God's creation. That's why Galatians 1 4 says Jesus came to deliver us from the present evil age. That's why Ephesians six twelve described the Christian life as a life of struggle against rulers and authorities. Against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The world is in civil war. God is the rightful king, but there's evil and pain and chaos everywhere because human beings and, and demons have rebelled against God. So, God has always been king of creation, and this civil war has been raging for millennia. Now, that raises the question what is the news Jesus is talking about? Verse 43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Everybody say good news. He's not just talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about the good news. Something new is happening in Jesus. And Jesus has come to proclaim that something new is happening. And we could sum up that good news in a variety of different ways. Here's one way you could say it. In the person of Jesus, God is becoming king in a new way. In the person of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who has always reigned with the Father and the Spirit. Where God is becoming king in a new way. The Son of God has become flesh. He's dwelt among us as a human being. He's come to do something new. Or you could say it like this. God has come near in the person of Jesus And he is now acting in Jesus and as Jesus to exert his power and authority in the world in a new way. Which means God is overthrowing all the forces of evil in the world. God is renewing what has been broken in his creation. God is revealing his glory to human beings who have been spiritually blinded by sin and Satan. God is acting to bring about the forgiveness of sin and the renewal of human hearts through Jesus Christ and the Spirit. God is restoring dignity to human beings whose dignity has been defiled by sin and by Satan. Jesus is saying, I'm here and I've come to set everything right. That's the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, as we reflect on that, we might ask the question, okay, what does the good news of the kingdom of God look like in practice? And that's what all these little stories are about. Jesus doesn't just tell us about the kingdom. He shows us what it looks like for God's kingdom to come. And there's about four little episodes, a lot of little stories in this passage. Each one is showing us something about what does it look like for the kingdom of God to come. So let's just walk through the stories again and and reflect on what each of them teaches us about God's kingdom. First, this text shows us that the coming of God's kingdom looks like Healing power and love. Let's look at verse 38 through 40 again. And there we see King Jesus bringing healing power and love. Verse 38 says, and he, that is Jesus, arose and left the synagogue. I'll pause to remind you if you were here last week. Jesus went to the synagogue, which was like the church building for the Jewish community. And he preached a sermon on the Sabbath day. And a- after he preached, there was a man there who had a demon, and the demon started crying out, and Jesus rebuked the demon, caused it to leave, and this man was restored and made whole, and his right mind was renewed, and everybody was amazed at the power and authority of Jesus. That's what Jared preached about last week. And this is still the same day. So we're getting a little glimpse into what a Sabbath day looks like for Jesus. He preached in the synagogue, and then, verse 38 says, he left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. OK, we haven't got to know Simon and Luke's gospel yet, but we're going to get to know Simon a little bit better next week. And we'll learn that Simon is going to become one of the inner circle of the disciples of Jesus. He already knows Jesus at this point. If we compare the other gospels, it's clear he's already been following Jesus around at some level at this point, but he's still living as a fisherman. He's still living at home with his wife and his extended family, as most humans have done and continue to do in most of the world. He lives with his wife, maybe some children, mother-in-law. We don't know who all's in the home. But uh, Simon is the guy, if you don't know, his name is going to be changed to Peter, Simon Peter, one of the leaders of the disciples of Jesus. And after he preaches in the synagogue, he goes to Simon's house. By the way, if you're interested, archaeologists are pretty sure they have found both this synagogue and the house that Simon Peter lived in. And they're like less than 100 yards apart from one another. So it'd be kind of like if we had a really awesome, exciting day of church where someone who is way better at preaching than me stood up here, Jesus, and preached and then cast out some demons. and We're all excited. And then we walked across the street or at least some of us did to have lunch at somebody's house. That's what's happening here. But when they gets to Simon's house, the verse continues to say that Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. She's sick. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. Now, that's an interesting phrase. Rebuke to rebuke something or someone is to say, you're out of line. Get back in line. This is you're doing something wrong. And the picture here is Jesus is the creator and king of the whole world. And now he's come among his people A world that he created for life and for flourishing. And when he encounters sickness, this is not the way it should be. Sickness and death are a symptom of the civil war that's going on in the world. So Jesus rebukes it, says, get back in line. And as soon as Jesus speaks this word, she's healed. The kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God, looks like God coming in the person of Jesus to restore everything that has been broken by sin, including overcoming the power of sickness and death. And I love this next little detail. And they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose up and began to serve them. Doesn't that sound like a lot of mothers and grandmothers you know? Reminds me of my mom and both of my grandmas and a lot of women in this church that are serving all the time. It's a very human story. She's sick, she's been laid out, she's very ill, as soon as she gets better, she gets up and starts cooking and taking care of everybody. But not only is it a very human, recognizable story, I think it is being told here by Luke because it's showing us a sort of spiritual lesson of how this is supposed to work. King Jesus comes near, and one way or another, when, when we encounter Jesus and respond to him in faith, we experience healing. Anybody testify? Have you experienced the healing love of Jesus in your life? And when you experience the healing love of Jesus in your life, the natural response is to be like Simon Peter's mother-in-law. She stood up and is immediately energized for service. The healing love of Jesus in her heart sets her free not only to live, but to thrive, which means to fulfill her purpose in serving other people. And that's true for our lives as well. But she's not the only person Jesus healed that day. Look at verse 40. It says, now when the sun was setting... Okay, so now it's evening. He had a family meal with Simon's family. Perhaps there were other disciples there. Perhaps they've been reflecting on the day's activities, fellowshipping, talking about the scripture. But as it's getting late, it says, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. All those who had any kinds of sickness... Jesus has authority over all of creation. He can heal anybody. But I want you to notice the manner of his healing. Apparently, there's a, there's a lot of people. The language suggests there's a lot of people. Probably there was a crowd forming outside of the door. We know from reading other stories that Jesus has the power to heal with his word. He doesn't have to be near to the person. We have stories of Jesus speaking a word of healing and somebody that's miles away is instantly healed. So Jesus could have just stood in front of that crowd and said, everybody be healed. And they all would have been healed. But that's not what he does. Look, it says he laid hands on every one of them. This is just like Jesus. And and it shows us something beautiful about the kingdom of God. The good news of the kingdom of God is not just that some distant, faraway God says, Ah, you guys are in trouble, but I'll be merciful. Everything be okay. The good news is that God has come near. He has become incarnate. He's taken on a human body so that he can physically touch. And he's attentive, though he could have much more efficiently healed everybody at once. He comes near in the body and gives individual attention to each one and touches them. Isn't that just like Jesus Church family? Perhaps there's people here today who feel like you often get lost in the crowd. Perhaps you feel like nobody sees or understands or knows what you're going through. And that's probably true. There's a lot of people that are hurting. There's so much pain in the world that often we miss each other. We overlook each other. But the good news of the kingdom is that the king sees everybody. And he comes near to everybody and he loves everybody. What does the good news of the kingdom look like? It looks like God coming near to touch us with his healing power and love. And then as we continue through the story, we learn that the coming of God's kingdom also looks like deliverance from evil spiritual powers. Look at verse 41. It says, and demons also came out of many crying. You are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. This story reminds us that there is real spiritual evil in the world. And that evil doesn't operate only at the level of human psychology or human sociology. It is true that evil and brokenness is manifest at those levels, but the Bible is telling us there's other layers to the problem of evil in the world. There are spiritual forces of evil at work in the realm, uh, in the spiritual realm and in the world. This is part of the Civil War. These demons are part of an evil domain of darkness. That's how the Bible describes it. They're rebels. They were angels created good by God, but they've rebelled against God. And now they're actively opposing God and God's good creation. Whenever you see demons at work in the scripture or in world history, they're opposing God and they're attacking God's glory as it's manifest in his image bearers. Human beings. Demons are always making an assault on human dignity. They attack God's glory, they attack people, and they do this mostly through deception. They tell lies. Now, Jared touched on this last week, but I'm just going to say again, we live in Western culture, we live in America, we live in the 21st century, and everything about our culture schools us not to believe in anything unless you can see it through a microscope or a telescope, unless you can experience it with your senses, we, we tend to have a very narrow view of reality. We believe in that which is empirically observable and verifiable. And there's nothing wrong with our commitment to the empirical sciences. Thank God for the empirical sciences that allow us to cure diseases and solve all kinds of problems. But if we believe that that's all... That there is to reality. We've got blinders on and we're missing a lot. And I'm not going to try and spend time philosophically or otherwise trying to convince you of that this morning. I'm just saying the Bible gives us a bigger picture. And I'm also saying that not only is it true that for most of world history, most people have known that. It's also true that in the world today, the overwhelming majority of people already know that. They already believe in evil spirits. They're already aware of evil spirits. They'll tell you stories about problems with evil spirits. So if we go to Asia or we go to Africa or we go to South America, there's all sorts of people everywhere that are going to tell you stories about evil spirits. And it's not because there's some sort of primitive, you know, unsophisticated, uneducated group of people. When Westerners say that, it's kind of racist. OK, many of these people are smarter than us, better educated than us, but they are attuned to the reality that there is more to the world than what you can see through a telescope or a microscope. There are spiritual realities. And Jesus came not only with healing love that can restore brokenness to bodies. He comes with power to overthrow the forces of evil in the spiritual realm to set us free. The demons know who he is. They're crying out as he casts them out. You are the son of God. They recognize him as the Holy One of God, as the Son of God. But Jesus tells them to keep quiet. And the reason he tells them to keep quiet is probably this. Jesus is unfolding the reality of his identity and his mission very slowly and very intentionally, mostly with a small group of people. And the reason that he's doing that is because most of his own people had a set of wrong ideas in their minds about what it means that The son of God, the king, is going to come to set the world right. They're expecting the savior to come with political power and flex military muscles in order to overthrow their enemies, especially the Romans, and and establish a new political kingdom in Israel. And so as soon as the word gets around that he's the Messiah, we're going to see as we read this gospel, many people are going to flock to him. To say, okay, we want to be a part of your military, political, economic movement. And other people are going to start trying to kill him because they see him as a political threat. So Jesus needs to teach people before he reveals that in a public and clear way he is the son of God and he is the king. He needs to show them that his kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. Our deepest problems are not political or economic, which is not to say that we don't have political and economic problems. Do we have some political and economic problems in the world today, church family? Yes, we do. And, and, uh, as we follow Jesus, He can help us work on those too. But if that's the only level at which we're working, we're really working on the surface of things. The deeper level is a spiritual level. Which means if we're focused on being locked in a culture war to try and take back the culture through some sort of political means, we've really already lost the war. What we're doing is very shallow. There's a deeper war that's happening at the level of human hearts, human souls, human minds, spiritual forces of evil. And Jesus needs to show them that his kingdom is not just about overthrowing the political enemies of Israel and establishing a political kingdom. His kingdom is about overthrowing all the forces of sin and Satan and death to set the whole world free so we can all be reconciled to God and one another. Doesn't that sound like better news, church? So King Jesus is saying to the angels, be quiet. He cast them out. And church family, we need to be aware that there are spiritual forces of evil around us. But more than that, we need to be aware that Jesus has all power and authority over those spiritual forces of evil. Let me just drop two verses for you that I encourage you to meditate on this week. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says this. He, that means God the Father, he, God the Father, disarmed the rulers and authorities. That means demons. If you go study in in context. He, God the Father, disarmed the demonic rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And him here is referring to Jesus. What is that saying? It's saying God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is king over all creation. But there's been a civil war going on and... There are spiritual forces of evil, demonic powers that are oppressing human beings and deceiving human beings and opposing God all throughout the world. And God did something new in Jesus and especially through the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. He took on himself our sin and all of its consequences. He experienced judgment and damnation that we deserved so that we could experience the freedom and life that Jesus deserves. He defeated death. He rose again from the grave. And what Paul is saying is Jesus, when he rose from the grave, is like a victorious Roman conqueror. The picture here is when those Roman conquerors would come back from battle, they would have their enemies and the, uh, the people, the kings, the commanders that they had beaten, They would have those people in chains and in rags walking in front of them as part of their victory parade. And their humiliation was a sign of the victory of the conquering hero. Now, that doesn't sound very nice, does it? The Romans were not afraid to flex their power. But what Paul is saying is those victories, you know, they're not real liberation. That's just more violence and more violence. But there is a victory over the forces of evil, and it was run by Jesus But the forces that he leads in triumphal procession are the demonic host, which he has decisively defeated through his cross. Which is me trying to say to you, Christian, if you trusted in Jesus, you don't need to fear the devil. You don't need to fear the demonic powers. Jesus has already humiliated them. He's already dealt them the death blow. And that leads us to the second verse I want you to meditate on this week. Colossians chapter 1, 13 through 14 is talking about what happened to you When you trusted in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus, please trust in Jesus today. This can happen to you. Here's what it says. He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. The domain of darkness. That's the spiritual power of Satan. We used to be slaves in the domain of darkness. But it says he, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We're now citizens of a new kingdom. And it says in him, in Jesus, we have redemption. Everybody say redemption. The forgiveness of our sins. What does it mean? It means we were slaves to the usurper, Satan, who had no intentions other than destroying us. But Jesus came and paid a a price on the cross. To redeem us from the power of Satan. So that not only are our chains broken, but he gives us new clothes and he cleans us up. And he makes us citizens of a new kingdom with power and authority over the forces of evil in the world. In Jesus, we have total victory. And as the story continues... Luke tells us not only in this 24 hour period did Jesus heal a lot of people and cast out a lot of demons, but Jesus also ran away from the people to go get some alone time with God. Luke is trying to alert us to the fact that the good news of the kingdom of God looks like restoration of loving union with God as the center of life. The good news of the kingdom of God looks like the restoration of loving union with God as the center of life. Look with me at verse 42 says, and when it was day, he, Jesus, departed and went into a desolate place. Jesus leaves. He, He gets up early. He leaves Simon's house. And he goes out to a desolate place, a place out in the wilderness, far away from people. Why does he do this? Well, if you compare the parallel passage in Mark chapter one, verse thirty five, it says he went out to a desolate place to pray. It's about being alone with his father. And this is a theme Luke is going to emphasize repeatedly. Let me just give you two examples. Luke chapter five, verse sixteen says this. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Luke five sixteen. And then again, in Luke six twelve, we read this. And in these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. It was the habit of Jesus to frequently get away from all the other people, to be alone with his father in prayer. I want us to meditate on this church family. Think about what it teaches us. Jesus was both fully God and fully human. As the God man, as the divine son, this habit of Jesus getting away to be with his father is giving us a glimpse into the inner life of God, the Holy Trinity. There is a constant communion of love between the father and the son. To say that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To say that God is eternal, loving relationship. But Jesus isn't just showing us something about the Trinity. About God's inner life. Jesus is also showing us something about what it means to be human. Jesus is not only fully God. He's also fully human. And he's the prototype of authentic human existence. Which means... Jesus constant devotion to prayer is a signpost to us that healthy, authentic human life is at its core, a life of prayer. It's a life of abiding in the father's love. It's so important for us to recognize that Jesus modeling for us, authentic humanity has A life of service, a life of constant public ministry. But his public ministry flowed out of his secret solitude, his life of communion with the Father, of abiding in the Father's love. Which means Jesus is modeling for us the priority of stillness in God's presence. Silence in God's presence. Solitude. In God's presence. A lot of us have a hard time with this. Let's have a confession moment. Anybody want to confess you're a little too busy all the time? In America, we at the same time brag about being busy and are aware that it's a problem. That we're jacking up our lives by too, being too busy. So it's kind of always like the ultimate humble brag, right? Right. Man, I'm just so busy. I've really been neglecting the core things because I've been serving and working so hard and hustling on my game all the time. Right? That's kind of how we are. But in Jesus, we see a wiser picture of how to be human. He does serve. I mean, he spent his Sabbath day healing people and teaching people and casting out demons. If you want to know about Sabbath, you should notice that. But it's also the case that he has a rhythm of life that is wise that involves constantly getting away from distraction to commune with the Father in his presence. Friends, just taking a day off to play video games and binge watch Netflix does not necessarily spiritually empower us. Anybody discovered that through experimentation? Sometimes when we talk about rest, we've got to be clear what we're talking about. Jesus had the life of Secret communion with the Father And that life is the wellspring of his public ministry Some of you have read with me A book that we went through years ago By Sky Justinic Called With The title of the book is just this word With And one of the main points of this book is just this The essence of Christian discipleship Is not life for God But life with God The gift of the gospel Is Is the gift of life with God. The life of loving relationship with God. Learning to enjoy God's forgiveness. Enjoy his love. Sit with him and be still with him. Is essential to human flourishing. And truly redemptive mission. Flows out of that. So Jesus is showing the coming of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom looks like. The restoration of that loving union with God. And finally here's the the fourth and final thing. That Jesus shows us about what the coming of the kingdom looks like. It looks like preaching and teaching in synagogues. Look with me again. Verses 42 through 44. Says, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news. There it is. Everybody say good news of the kingdom of God. Everybody say the kingdom of God. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. The central purpose of his mission was preaching. And then it goes on to say, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. That's that's a statement about this whole season of his ministry. He went around continually preaching in the synagogues, preaching and teaching the heart of the public ministry of Jesus was not his miracles of healing. It wasn't his miracles of casting out demons. It wasn't his miracles of raising people from the dead. Or feeding people, though he did all of those and they're all good things. The heart was his ministry of preaching and teaching. If you want to study this this week, I encourage you to go study John 8, 36 through 37. That's the wrong uh, John 18, verse 36 to 37. John 18, verse 36 to 37. And John 8, 31 through 32. And the former of those, John 18, 36 to 37, Jesus says... For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Bearing witness to the truth, preaching and tre- teaching are at the heart of Jesus' public ministry. And then in John eight thirty one 31-32, Jesus speaks to a group of would-be disciples, and he says, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and some of you can finish this for me, and the truth will set you... what? The truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. Now, a few weeks ago, I pointed out to you in Luke's gospel that Luke talks to us about the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the life of Jesus. And I told you that as we read through chapter four, we'll see the power of the Holy Spirit is at work through the way Jesus heals people and casts out demons. But I said, but there is a greater, a greater manifestation of power in the teaching ministry of Jesus and here that point is becoming clear why is it becoming clear once again we got to recognize we have all sorts of problems in this life but the deepest problems are not our physical problems the deepest problem is not our sickness the deepest problem is spiritual and jesus came to set us free by dying on the cross for our sins by proclaiming to us the truth of his word so that we can be set free from the lies and deceptions of Satan and through the gift of his Holy Spirit within us, who frees us to live by faith in the word of God. Sin and Satan keep people slaves primarily through deception. Jesus sets people free by his cross, his resurrection and the truth of his word. If we have the truth of God and we believe it, we have everything we need. Which means, church family, hear me. Do not trade God's truth. Do not trade God's truth for anything. Do not trade God's truth for convenient fantasies. Do not trade God's truth for comfortable half-truths. Do not trade God's truth for accommodations to the spirit of the age. God's truth sets people free. And God's truth in all of its raw, untamed power, beauty, and redemptive authority is exactly what we need. So I've got to ask you, are you hungry for God's truth? Some days when I wake up, I'm hungry for God's truth, and sometimes I'm not. And I just pray, God... Get me back into tune with reality. I need your truth more than I need food. I need your truth more than I need any kind of physical healing or any kind of help with my circumstances. Our souls desperately need the truth of God. Okay, as we've been reflecting today, we've said Jesus is bringing God's kingdom and it looks like healing, power and love. It looks like deliverance from evil spiritual powers It looks like restoration of our communion with the father. And it looks like the preaching and teaching of truth. Now I want to step back. And before we finish today, I want to ask us to ponder. What does all of this mean for us? Luke gave us a compressed account of 24 hours in the life of Jesus. Wouldn't it be fun to walk around with Jesus for 24 hours on earth? In this there's a lot of activity. But what does it mean for us? And I want to say a few things. First of all, what it means for us is we need to hear and believe the good news that the crucified and risen Jesus is king. He's Lord over all creation, which means no matter what's going on in the world, evil will not win. Sickness and death will not win. Lies will not win. Jesus and his truth will win. So we can all relax and rejoice. Just believe the gospel. Everybody say relax. Everybody say rejoice. I feel like before I say anything else, we just got to breathe in deep. Okay, let's just inhale. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay because Jesus is king. And as we're believing that truth, we also need to recognize Christian maturity and Christian wisdom Involves Learning to recognize That we live In the tension Between two times And two kingdoms Now help To help us understand what that means And what, what we've read in the Bible today Means we've got a little visual aid That pops up on the screen I hope you can see it But let me try and explain it to you There are two blue lines The first one On the top is labeled the age to come the bible talks about the age to come okay the the one on the bottom the blue line on the bottom is labeled this age now if we had more time i could give you a lot of bible verses on both of those but here's what the bible says this age is characterized by sin it's characterized by sickness it's characterized by death it's characterized by demons it's characterized by deception It's characterized by alienation and it's characterized by chaos. The age to come is marked by the opposite of all those things. Sin is overcome by forgiveness and grace. Sickness is replaced by healing, death, by life. Demons are overcome through the deliverance, the freedom of Jesus. Deception is overcome by truth. Alienation and loneliness are replaced by reconciliation and intimacy with God and with one another. Chaos is replaced by peace. Now, those are what the blue lines mean. But you also see two yellow lines. The first yellow line means the first coming of Jesus. That's what we've been reading about. Jesus came and when he showed up on the earth, he said, good news. The kingdom of God is here. Good news. I have come to set everything right to heal the world. But the second line, the second yellow line Is the second coming of Jesus. In his first coming. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the grave. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He sat down on a throne. He poured out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. In his second coming. He will once and for all defeat Satan and sin and death. And usher in God's new creation. Now we live between those two yellow lines. Jesus has already come once. We're waiting for him to come a second time, which means we got to ask ourselves a question. And this is a trick question. Do we live in this age or in the age to come? The good news about this trick question is whatever you say is going to be right. This age or the age to come? It's both. It's both. We live in this age and in the age to come. We live at a, at a place where two powerful forces are rubbing against each other like tectonic plates. One of them is the domain of darkness. One of them is the kingdom of Jesus. That's the tension of this present experience. I already read you a bunch of verses talking about this present evil age. But in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul says Christians are people on whom the end of the ages has come. The new age has already dawned in Jesus. So Living with spiritual wisdom in this time means learning to recognize In this in this time we get both we get sin and forgiveness. We get sickness and healing. We get death and life, demons and deliverance, deception and truth, alienation, and reconciliation, chaos and peace. So living wisely involves learning to live as people who practice the healthy spiritual discipline of lament, mourning over the ongoing brokenness of the world. But it also means living as people of hope. And people of love. The temptation is this. As we experience this age. We get grumpy. Anybody ever get grumpy? Anybody's friends or roommates or spouse ever get grumpy? (laughs) Good job. You confess for yourself and not your spouse. That was a test. We all get grumpy. And when we get grumpy. We start doing some things that the Bible talks a lot about. Like grumbling. Complaining. Blaming. This is different than living with hope and love. You can think about how this works at the level of your, your job, your school, your church, or your family. When you go to work, who went to work this week and everything was perfect? I didn't get a single hand. Who went to work this week and found some of this age going on? Okay. Lots of hands there. There was a lot of this age. Well, if you think that... Everything's supposed to be fine. Then when this age hits you at work, there's chaos and there's all kinds of problems and frustrations. You start looking for who to blame. Who do you probably blame? (laughs) Somebody said their boss. Thank you for that honesty. Yes. You blame your manager or their manager or their manager or go all the way to the CEO. Right. You start grumbling and complaining. Does that help anything? No, it does not. At school, there's problems. Anybody encounter this age at school? If you're in school, I have a friend who's a superintendent of a school who told me February is national hate your school month. It was not Morgan, by the way. Different. <laughs> I know multiple school administrators because it's cold, it's dark, everybody's getting tired of the school year. They get mad at their head of school. Everybody starts complaining and arguing at church. Hey, have you found that this church is adequate to solve all of your problems and heal all the wounds of your soul? Me neither. And so then we start grumbling and complaining. We blame somebody, the community group leader, you blame me, I don't know, blame whoever you want to blame. (laughs) Um, And in family, when family life is stressful, we start looking for somebody to blame, right? Usually our spouse. Certainly couldn't be me, right? Uh, But we we start looking for for who to blame. And that's immature. It's an immature response. Not only is it immature, it's actually very toxic and destructive. But to live as people of wisdom means to recognize, hey, until Jesus comes back the second time, life is going to be frustrating. Amen, church. Life is going to be difficult. But we live as people of hope, which means when it gets stressful in my family, instead of turning to my wife and starting to criticize her and blame her, I could say, hey, this is going to be hard, but we're in it together. Let's set our hopes on Jesus and say, how can we comfort and support each other through the difficulties of this season? Doesn't that sound better? Christians are people of hope and love, which means we've got a resilient joy in the midst of the frustrations around us so that even as we deal with the darkness of this present age, we are a people of light and it guides our mission. Listen, we can't solve all the problems in this neighborhood, but last week, dozens of y'all came and gave people a safe place to have fun at the fall festival. That was a sign that the, pres- the future of Jesus is coming into the present age. And this week, you were all doing it all over the place. Some of you were out at after-school programs, and some of you have Bible studies. Some of you were taking care of kids in your home or at school. Some of you were trying to be salt and light in your place of work, praying for people and trying to keep calm when everybody's fighting. Many of you were do- helping out with ministry programs, like uh, Monday night, Nate Goggin opening up the gym to pre- provide a safe space for people to play sports in a world where there's not many of those third spaces. Uh... Many of you are working at the clinic this week, trying to provide access for kids in our community to get healing. Um, lots of you are working all the time through the different ministries that we've started. And here's the thing Have we solved the problems in our community, church? No. And they're not going to be all the way solved until Jesus gets back. But until then, the people of God are signs of the kingdom of God. And we're agents of the kingdom of God. So that wherever we go by God's grace, The kingdom of God is coming near through the power of the Holy Spirit so that the world can find hope. And that's what our mission is about as a church. But I don't want to end today with a call to a mission because the good news of this story, friends, is not that if we work hard enough, we can solve the problem of the world. The good news of this story is that Jesus is the king. And I want to invite you to stand right now. We're about to sing one more song of worship, but we can... Sing this song, even with hearts that are attuned to the brokenness of the world, that are mourning and lamenting over the brokenness of the world. But we can sing this song with hope and with joy and with gratitude because we know evil will not win. The lies will not win. Sin and death will not get the last word because Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord, is king over all creation. Bow your heads with me. Let's pray one more prayer before we sing this song to the Lord. Father, we praise you and we thank you for the reality of your kingdom. And I pray again, Lord, as we meditate on these truths of scripture that will be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Help us to be people who are not desensitized to the pain in the world, but who lament we mourn like Jesus mourned for the brokenness of the world. But let our lament always be seasoned with joy and with hope because we know all victory belongs to Jesus. And Lord, I pray that instead of falling into the temptation of complaining and arguing and grumbling, we'd be people who are set free by Jesus to imitate his example. Lord, people for whom communion with the Father, resting in the Father's love is the center of our lives. And out of that... Abiding in your love, Lord, we become people of truth and people of service so that the healing power and the delivering power of Jesus flows out from us into the world. And and as we do that, Lord, sustain us by your grace and we pray in everything not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory.